We are in a section of the book of Romans where Paul is answering the question, who needs the gospel? Who needs the good news about Jesus? And Paul finishes this section by focusing on the gift of silence. We've been looking at this section of the letter for a few weeks, and this is the last section And Paul is focusing on the gift of silence. Now, some people say silence is golden. They love peace and quiet. Other people get nervous when there's silence. They find background noise to be very comforting. But in our passage this morning, Paul wants all of us, the whole world, to be brought to a particular kind of silence. It's not the silence you find when you're out for a walk in the woods. It's not the silence when everyone else is out of the house. Paul wants us to experience the silence that comes from recognizing our sin and owning up to our sin. The silence Paul has in mind comes when we stop trying to excuse our sin We stop claiming we can rise above sin by ourselves. And maybe that sounds like a depressing thing for us to be thinking about. But it shouldn't be. The kind of silence Paul wants to bring bring us to is a good gift from God. It prepares us to experience the saving, energizing power of God. In chapters 1 and 2 of this letter, Paul has been working to convince us that we are sinners. All of us. He has been relentless in doing that. You've noticed that if you've been here. Paul has shown that none of us can slip out of the net here. We all deserve God's wrath. We've earned his wrath. And now finally, Paul wants to bring us to a point of silence. And he aims to do that by telling us we cannot argue our way out of God's wrath and we cannot behave our way out of God's wrath. That's what we're going to hear in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. And this is important for us to hear because not only do we try to do these things ourselves, People we talk to will try these things as well. They will try to argue their way out of God's wrath. They will try to behave their way out of his wrath. So we need to hear what God says about this through the Apostle Paul. If you haven't already found Romans 3, it's on page uh, 1130 or in the large print 1747. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much, in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. 
as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is God's word. Paul is writing a letter here. But as he writes, he's anticipating ways that people will respond to him. Paul has spent enough years speaking and debating around the world that he knows the ways people try to wriggle out of the truth about their sinfulness. He knows the ways they try to divert attention from their sin and excuse their sin. And that's what Paul deals with in verses 1 to 8. He says to his readers, we can't argue our way out of God's wrath. We can't do it, but in these verses, Paul deals with three ways people try to do it. Now, there are plenty of other ways to try this, but in these verses, Paul gives us three examples. He gives us examples to show that no argument can get us out of God's wrath. And the first example argument goes something like this. I'm a religious person, Paul. Are you trying to tell me that counts for nothing? Are you trying to tell me it was all pointless? That I may as well have been an atheist? Surely not, Paul. In Paul's context, it was the Jews who would make that kind of argument. Paul's own people. 
At the end of chapter 2, Paul claimed that even the Jews, the religious people of his day, even they are sinners. Judged by the standard of God's law, they are lawbreakers. And now Paul can imagine one of his fellow Jews saying to him, But Paul, it was God who chose the Jews way back. He chose Abraham and made promises to Abraham about his descendants. Are you telling us, Paul, there is no benefit to that? Paul says, of course there's benefit to it. Verse 1, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much, in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. The words, first of all, probably mean of first importance. In other words, I could mention lots of advantages to being a Jew, but the greatest advantage is that the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. They were given the Old Testament, and they were the first to be given the good news about Jesus. Jesus, during his ministry, preached almost exclusively to the Jews. His first disciples were all Jews. And after Jesus' resurrection and return to heaven, the first gospel messages were preached to Jews. Thousands of them. Men and women who'd come to Jerusalem for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Paul himself is a Jew. And for years... He's been bringing the gospel to Jews all over the Roman world. Paul's point is, of course there are benefits to being a Jew. Since the days of Abraham, God's message has always come to us first. There is great advantage to being a Jew. But, Paul says, or as he's implying here, as I've explained in chapter 2, Being a Jew doesn't save you from God's wrath. Today, we could imagine religious people here in England making a very similar argument with Paul. You keep telling me I'm a sinner, Paul, in spite of my Christian upbringing, in spite of all those years of church attendance and youth group attendance and watching songs of praise. Are you really trying to tell me, Paul, there was no value to that? That I'm no better off because of that? Paul's response here applies to that argument too. Of course there's an advantage to being brought up in a Christian family. You have had the great advantage of hearing the words of God for most of your life. But that doesn't save you. It doesn't absolve you of the guilt of your sin. That only happens when you stop trying to defend yourself and instead accept the reality of your sin and come to God for mercy. Mercy that only comes to us as we place all our hopes in Jesus. In verse 3, Paul mentions a second example argument. 
a way that we might try to argue our way out of God's wrath. And it's the kind of argument that tries to deflect attention from our sin by turning the spotlight onto God and suggesting that really God hasn't been fair. As Paul explains the argument here, it goes like this. Hasn't God failed the Jews in some way? If they don't accept Jesus and he pours out wrath on them, doesn't that mean God has let them down? Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. The argument Paul has in mind seems to be, what about God's promises, Paul? If some of the Jews refuse to accept Jesus, and if God judges them as sinners, doesn't that mean God has failed to deliver on his promises? But Paul says, if you're thinking that way, then you misunderstand God's promises. It's true that God promised to bless Abraham's descendants. And it's equally true that he promised to condemn sin. If some of Abraham's descendants refuse to bow the knee to Jesus, then God is being faithful to his promises when he condemns them. In verse 4, Paul uses the word true in the sense of reliable, true to his word. And liar is the opposite of that. Here it means unreliable, faithless. So the sense is, if some Jews turn out to be faithless, that does not mean God is being unfaithful to his promises. He has always promised to stand in opposition to sin. So even if every human being proved to be faithless, God would be faithful by condemning them. Saving people is not the only way for God to be faithful. Catherine the Great is supposed to have said, God is good. He is bound to forgive us. That's his job. A whole lot of people today live with that view of God. This kind of argument is not unique to the Jews of Paul's day. God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. But Catherine the Great was wrong. Yes, God is good. And because he is good, he is bound to be wrathful towards sin. He may show mercy and grace by providing a way of escape for sinners. And in fact, he has done that in Jesus. But because God is good and faithful to his promises, he is bound to punish sin. Next week, Paul will tell us our sin was punished in Jesus on the cross. But if we refuse to trust in Jesus and his work, We cannot say God is being unfaithful when he punishes us. 
in order to get a grasp of Paul's third example argument, think back for a moment to the MP's expenses scandal from a few years ago. Remember that time when politician after politician was exposed as having misused taxpayers' money. It seemed like every day we were hearing more about it for a while. And when that news began to leak out, the public demanded justice. But imagine for a moment those MPs had turned around. They turned around to the British public and said, hold on, we shouldn't be punished for this. All we've done is given you a chance to show how good you are. Our law-breaking has allowed you to show your outrage at law-breaking. That shows you're good people. So you shouldn't punish us as MPs. You should thank us. How far would that argument have got our MPs? It wouldn't have got them anywhere. We understand that law-breaking deserves to be punished. Full stop. Public outrage at law-breaking may be a good thing. But it doesn't excuse the people who did the law-breaking. That argument I just put into the mouth of MPs is just about the same argument Paul is responding to in verses 5 to 8. Except here, it's people saying, God shouldn't punish our sin, because our sin actually makes God look better. It shows up his righteousness all the more brightly. In verses 5 to 8, Paul gives us an example of a silly argument dressed up to look smart. It's designed to get around human guilt by using philosophical smoke and mirrors. But in response to that kind of thing, Paul says, you really want to use clever arguments to wriggle out of your guilt? But you wouldn't want the whole world to be able to do that, would you? You wouldn't want corrupt MPs to get off that way, would you? You wouldn't want leaders who oversee genocide to get off that way, would you? Or rapists, or the person who hacked your computer, or stole your car. You'd be hopping mad if they talked their way out of their just punishment. But, Paul is saying, that's what you try to do with God. At the end of verse 8, Paul gives us the verdict on people who persist in this. Who persist in trying to use clever, clever arguments to avoid owning up to their sin. He says in verse 8, their condemnation is just. It is entirely fair that God refuses to be swayed by clever arguments from guilty people. We expect that in our own justice system. In fact, we demand it from our justice system. And we can't complain when God's justice works the same way. We cannot argue our way out of God's wrath. 
not by pointing to our religious background, not through blaming God, and not by silly arguments dressed up to look smart. And certainly not by any other kind of argument. In verses 1 to 8, Paul has been working to bring us a step closer to silence. And in verses 9 to 20, he takes us one last step. He tells us we can't behave our way out of God's wrath. Look at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Back in verse 2, Paul said there is an advantage to being a Jew. So we have to ask, is he contradicting himself here? Well, remember, in verse 2, he was talking about the advantage of having the very words of God. But here, he's asking if Jews have any advantage when it comes to our ability to please God. And the answer there is no, not at all. Having God's word doesn't make us any less sinful than people who don't have it. A privileged background will not give you a privileged position on judgment day. The irreligious and the religious person both stand on equal ground before God. They're both helpless sinners. Notice how Paul puts it. Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. So our problem is not just that we do sinful things. Our problem is that we are enslaved to sin. By ourselves, we can't get out of that slavery. Our hearts are enslaved. The poet W.B. Yeats talked about the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. He said, that's what I'm like inside, a foul rag and bone shop. And he said, it feels like a pit. I have no ladder to climb out of it. I'm stuck in my own foulness, my arrogance, my envy, and prejudice and selfish ambition. We can't just rise above our sin. We are under its power. In verse 10, Paul quotes from the Old Testament and he says, There is no one righteous, not even one. Richard Cunningham is the director of UCCF. That's the Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship. And he talks about the struggle that he used to have with this biblical teaching, that no one is righteous. Maybe some of us struggle with this teaching too. Richard Cunningham looked at the life of Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian leader who campaigned for justice and did it peacefully. Richard Cunningham says, I thought... Here is a righteous man, if ever there was one. 
he makes a nonsense of the Christian idea of universal human sinfulness. Richard Cunningham at that point in his life would have said to Paul, Gandhi doesn't fit your teaching, Paul. Maybe you've had similar thoughts about someone else. But then one day, Richard Cunningham picked up Gandhi's autobiography. And he read what Gandhi said about himself. Here's what he read in that book. I hope to acquaint the reader fully with all my faults and errors. In judging myself, I shall try to be as harsh as truth, as I want others also to be. Measuring myself by that standard, I must exclaim, where is there a wretch so miserable and loathsome as I? I have forsaken my maker, so faithless have I been. For it is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him, who, as I fully know, governs every breath of my life and whose offspring I am. I know that it is the evil passions within that keep me so far from him, and yet I cannot get away from them. Gandhi is the poster boy for human goodness and righteousness. And yet he knew himself to be under the power of sin. Would any of us want to claim that we are better than Gandhi? Surely our consciences are on the side of the Bible. We know the evil passions within. Now, we could ask, did Gandhi do things that were good on a human level? Of course he did. Plenty of them. But those things could never bridge the divide between his sinful heart and a holy God. In verses 10 to 18, Paul strings together quotations from at least six different Old Testament passages. We read from one of them earlier, Isaiah 59. And he strings these quotations together all to prove that we are under the power of sin. He says, our speech is full of sin. Verse 13, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. We have poison and death in our mouths. And how often we spew it onto others through our words. How many times have we skewered someone with our words? Maybe behind their back. Maybe this past week. How often have we cut someone with a dismissive comment? How often have we put someone down with a condescending, belittling comment? Our speech is full of sin. And, Paul says, we seek each other's blood. Verse 15, 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, not many people will end up being literal murderers. But aren't there times when we get enraged with people who get in our way? Especially when we're behind a steering wheel. Last week, I read about a performance artist who, at one of her performances, set up some items in front of an audience. And she invited that audience to participate in the performance. They were told they could take the items and use them whatever way they wanted. And the items that she set out were a rose, a pen, a scalpel, honey, a feather, a gun, and a bullet. Now, when the audience set to work, it was not long before they had loaded the bullet into the gun, put the gun in the artist's hand, and pointed it at her head. Now, we could debate whether or not that's really art, but I think it illustrates Paul's point. It does not take long for our minds to wander towards violence and murder, even if we don't do it. By nature, we are not peacemakers. And when our hearts overflow into our actions, peace is not what flows out. Not towards other people and not towards God. I said Paul has been quoting from various places in the Old Testament. And so here he's using the words law or the word law as a way of referring not just to the first five books of the Old Testament, but to the whole Old Testament. The Hebrew word for law is Torah, and that simply means instruction. All of the scripture is God's instruction. And so look then what Paul says about this Torah. In verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is where Paul has been leading us to since the middle of chapter 1. He started with the pagan, irreligious people. Then he moved on to the religious folk. And in verse 19, he says to religious people, your own scriptures condemn you. I've just quoted them to you, proving you're no better than anyone else. God's word doesn't justify you, it exposes your sin. And if you listen to it, Paul says, it is not going to tell you that you're fine. It will make you conscious of your sin. 
And so now, we are where we need to be. God's word silences every mouth, not just pagan mouths, but every mouth. Some of you have been following the trial of Oscar Pistorius. Well, we are to imagine a courtroom scene here in verses 19 and 20. Picture the courtroom and picture the world standing in the dock. Every man, woman, and child. And God says, you can't argue your way out of my wrath. You can't behave your way out of my wrath. Neither your words or your deeds can earn you a not guilty verdict before me. If we have been following Paul, then he has us exactly where he wants us. He has us finally in silence. And that is a good place to be. It is a gift from God when our delusions about ourselves are stripped away. When we see ourselves as we really are before God. Helpless sinners in need of his mercy. It is a gift to have our chattering lips silenced. To have nothing left to say before God. No more excuses. No more clever arguments. It is a gift to be shown that our self-righteousness is like filthy rags before God. It's a gift to realize that all we can bring to God is our sin and our need. It's a gift because it means we're ready for the true righteousness that comes from God. We're ready to hear about Jesus who lived a life of perfect obedience on our behalf and who died as a sinner on our behalf. If Paul has brought us to silence, then we can thank God for his mercy to us. It means we're ready for the good news of forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to remember that good news around the Lord's table. But first, we're going to remember it in song. So let's stand together as we sing, first of all, Mighty is the power of the cross, and then Rock of Ages. <laughs> 